Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to share with you an episode, an interview that I did on the Decentralized Revolution podcast, the Mises Caucus podcast. And it was in early 2022. It was a little over an hour of a conversation. And I'm going to eliminate some of the things that aren't really related to the topics that I want to share with you about today. So you can go back and listen to that full episode. But you're going to get most of the episode, you know, just not the tail end and the beginning of a few things. We talked about critical race theory, social justice, Jordan Peterson, pop culture, shows that we're into, and a whole host of other issues such as like what sort of books would you recommend to a non-Christian to read about, you know, describing what Christianity is. So there's a lot of things that are really good in this. It's also one that is on video. If you're just listening, you can also watch this conversation on our YouTube channel. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show. Doug Stewart, you're the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. That's good. I've wanted to have you on for a while. A year or so ago, I had on Carrie and Dick, who also were the co-authors on Faith Seeking Freedom. So why don't you kind of update us? Yeah. And when I did, the book was either not out or just barely out. So how is that book doing? How has it helped what you guys are doing at the Libertarian Christian Institute? Yeah. So the book is Faith Seeking Freedom. It's a nice yellow cover with blue text that's really large, and you can get a copy at libertarianchristians.com. I'm pretty sure you would have had an interview with them in 2021. So the book was out in November of 2020, and we got a little bit of a slow start in promoting it and kind of getting it out there. But it's like building momentum, and we've gotten so much positive feedback about it. There's been a lot of people that have said they've just kind of kept it nearby because they often get the kind of questions that are in the book which I'll explain what it kind of content it is here in a minute. But the feedback we're getting is like, this has really helped me sort of clarify my thoughts. It's also been really good for me to give to... We had some guy give it... He bought a whole bunch of copies for all the elders in his church. And incidentally, they actually asked him to preach on a relevant topic that a libertarian should preach on at the pulpit. So that was kind of cool that he got to do that. So there are a number of people who said, I've given this to people and it's enhanced our ability to have conversations together. The book itself is basically, I don't want to undersell it as a glorified Q&A, but it is 102 questions, I believe, that are divided up into about 10 to 12 chapters that are topical starting from the basics of libertarianism to some basic economics, to abortion, to immigration, to nationalism, patriotism. We even open up with a chapter on like, why should a Christian even care about politics? Because we want to sort of head that off at the gate with respect to people thinking, well, why should I care about what a libertarian says about, you know, faith and so forth? So it's not very long. It's about 125 pages, but it's definitely been useful for a lot of people. Oh, I should also mention that we our original plan was to call it something like 100 questions in 100 words or less. And we, as we began writing, we realized that's yeah. not going to work. So there are, just, yeah. <laughs> well, and it, the idea would be, can you give an answer at a water cooler at your mm. office? Well, that kind of went out the window by the end of 2020. There's no water coolers anymore yeah. if you're in the city. So it's like, all right, how do we 
I'm sort of joking there. We ended up realizing that two to 200 to 250 words is about right. So each answer is about that long. The exception would be the abortion chapter, which is a little bit more extensive. We kind of fudged it on that, but you know, we kept it under 200 and elsewhere. So we worked really hard at keeping to that. So these are not lengthy, lengthy, lengthy answers. These are succinct. They've been, you know, reviewed by each other internally and by our editors so that we can sort of have a really good, succinct outcome. Yeah, it's good just for that reason, because it's funny, especially sort of, you know, online debates and stuff. I saw a tweet the other day where, you know, someone was pushing back on something a libertarian said, and they're like, I want a more substantive answer, but don't give me a book to read, you know, because they don't want like a long book. And so you could, on a specific issue, just, you know, give them one page or, you know, less than a page of this. And at least it would provide them some direction as to how to think about it and where to look. So I think that's valuable to put things in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. Well, and we another note is that we've tried to keep it as conversational in tone as possible because we knew that we would end up publishing an audiobook for it, which we have. That came out in late summer of 2021. So there's an audiobook that you can download, same website. And you can also get it on Audible as well. So we wanted to make the questions and answers conversational. So if all you did was look through the table of contents and you read the questions, which is basically the section or chapter headings or whatever, you would sort of even sense then, even without reading the answers, that there's like a conversation happening and there's the in-between the lines. And of course, what we want you to see is what's in between those lines, right? Because you you open up the book and you see the actual answer. Yeah, there is kind of a, it's organized well. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that about it. I want to talk to you basically a lot about social justice and what that means, especially because it's, you know, it's driving a lot of policy. But I want to just talk just a couple of minutes about, you know, COVID and all this, especially as a Christian, there's been a lot of, you know, people posting editorials or letters to the editor, people writing from a Christian perspective and not to question anyone's faith or anything like that. I'm not doing that. But like there is sort of a smug tone of, well, if you want to show love for your neighbor, you need to, you know, follow this prescription Mm. of the government, X, Y, or Z. And it's kind of hard to give an answer to that without sounding, you know, I think they phrase things that way to make it sound like, well, you're just a jerk if you even take up the question. So, and I noticed, yeah, so I, I noticed on the Libertarian Christians website that, you guys have done a little work on that. There's a pop-up to say, hey, join our list and get some info yes. about this, I think. So tell yeah. us about how the Institute there has handled it. And yeah, I'll just leave it there. Yeah, no, it's all good. So yeah, it's like the moral high ground is inherent in the statement, you have to do X, Y, or Z things or habits in public in order to be considered as somebody who loves their neighbor. And so it's kind of... It sort of reminds me, I'm going to upset a few of my friends, Christian friends with this statement. But when someone says something along the lines of, I have a high view of scripture, what they mean is something that's not just, I have a high value of scripture. They mean that, but they have these like other things that come along with it. That it's like, if you don't affirm those things, you must not have a high view of scripture. And so it's the same idea here where you have Christians who say, we really, really want to love our neighbor. And we really want to show love to our neighbor. And that 
show love is, well, we have to demonstrate it. And in order to demonstrate it, you have to think deliberately and you have to choose to either put on a mask or to vaccinate or whatever the choice they think is the action that's visible in public. And now, of course, we're venturing into things like virtue signaling or grandstanding in some ways. And most of these people, I don't think are doing that. I think they take a little bit of pleasure in knowing that people see them as that way, but I think that's just human. I'm not going to fault them too much for that. But it's very, I would say, narrow-minded to believe that simply putting on a mask or getting vaccinated for the sake of other people is the only way to demonstrate love to your neighbor. Right. It's possible. Like, I would say that, let's just take ourselves and put ourselves in mid-2020. Let's say we already know that it spreads, I guess it's aerosol or whatever, rather, as opposed to like it's on surfaces. Correct. Let's say we already know that and we're like, all right, maybe the science is not really settled, whatever that, that's not supposed to be a thing anyway, right? So like whatever the consensus is, masks probably work. Okay, fine. I can see that if you go into a nursing home, which you probably wouldn't be allowed to in 2020, you go in to see your grandparents or your elderly parents or somebody who is, you know, has comorbidities health issues, whatever. Like, you can see yourself saying, I'm going to make a decision in this particular case. The impulse, however, is that most people want to say masking in public is the way to be loving, as opposed to being deliberate about when you mask in public. I have refused, except for when I had to go to Hershey Park and wear a mask outside, except at the water park, which was really, really interesting because it wasn't less crowded there. (laughs) Except for when I went to Hershey Park in 2020, I never, I refused to wear a mask outside. It just, I absolutely would refuse to. And that's about the only extent of refusal that I did because honestly, there was, I was just like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, so I, you're I'll saying six feet away. You only refused outside. Yeah, I only refused outside. And I am personally, and again, I'm not endorsing a particular way of being with respect to whether or not somebody should mask. When required, like when I flew in 2020, 2021, I had to, you know, wear a mask in the airports to get on. Even on airport property while we were outside, I didn't wear a mask. But, you know, if I was asked who, I did. And there are some private organizations and churches that required masks and still do in some respects. And so what I do is I just cleverly choose to not wear it in a way if I can. And so I've navigated that a little differently. I'm a little bit more compliant than some other people who, I mean, I only know a couple people who pretty much refuse to wear masks the entire time in public near people. And what they do is they just haven't done it, right? And so my life circumstances are such that it would create bigger problems for me to not sort of comply in those ways. And honestly, I would say to my defense, it would be something like the idea of meat sacrifice to idols. Look, if you think my mask is protecting you, and even if I give you the benefit of the doubt that it does, it's really not a big deal for me to put this on for 15 minutes while we're in a meeting for my kids, whatever. I'm not going to reveal places that I've been that way. But back to the like loving your neighbor stuff, it's like, well, wait a second. If you step back a little bit and you ask yourself, and this is in some ways, I think the libertarian take, and I think the more Mises centered libertarian angle on this is that we're highly skeptical of authority and we're highly skeptical of people in authority who seem to want to have that authority. So you have mandates, guidance, whatever wording you want to say by the federal government, right? And if it didn't come along with shutting down dissenting information or as apparently Justin Trudeau recently said, there's something called unapproved opinion, which is really ridiculous and very alarming. If it weren't for the fact that those were also being done alongside 
the guidance that the CDC and everything was given, you would think that the state has some ulterior motives. And again, I don't want to venture into conspiracy theory territory here because there's only so much evidence to show that there are people in high places who want to control us, right? And there is a reasonable skepticism that we should all have as Christians and as human beings who care about other people that when the state tells you to do something and it keeps telling you to do the same thing and it changes it based on updating knowledge, I understand that that's reasonable, that's legit, that can be legit, I should say. But then they close out dissenting information. I saw a Babylon Bee headline that said, Joe Rogan is only going to be spreading CDC misinformation from here on. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay. When you are in an environment like that, I think it is very loving to your neighbor to question their decision to simply blindly follow. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should be a jerk. You clearly should not be a jerk. I mean, come on. Come on, man. That's kind of the thing we got to say now, right? Come on, man. You shouldn't be a jerk about it. But when you don't comply with individual, you know, or group or institution or even state guidelines to wear a mask inside or whatever situation that you're in, you're bringing up a challenge and you have to be ready for that. I knew when I refused to mask outside when everybody else was that in, I have a particular setting in mind where there were a lot of people there and we were able to social distance during that outdoor situation, but I refused to mask. And if somebody would have told me that, I had answers ready as to why that was stupid. I wasn't going to call them stupid to their face. Now, if they're listening to this, they probably won't. But if they are ever listening to this, they're going to be like, did Doug call me stupid? No, I'm not calling you stupid, but I think the rule is stupid. So anyway, you have to be ready with an answer and you have to also sort of have your thoughts in order with respect to how are you going to handle yourself when confronted? And that's a lot more difficult. I'm not a huge confrontational kind of person, but other people are. And if you become just belligerent and you become the kind of stereotype that tends to be on the left right now about people who refuse to vaccinate or people who refuse to wear a mask and whatever, like if you're belligerent, you're just going to give those people a bad reputation. But if you're thoughtful and you you build rapport with people, I think it could be well done. Yeah, I mean, my policy is for the last seven, eight months uh, here in Knox County, like almost nobody wants you to mask anymore. But the only time I've really even been asked in the last several months is that I went to the eye doctor, a new eye doctor since I just moved here. And she just like handed me a mask. And I like I as politely as I could possibly be, because sometimes I just the look of me, I don't look polite (laughs) or amenable. (laughs) So I said, hey, I'm sorry, I just don't wear a mask. And she's like, well, this is like a medical facility. Da, 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 da. I was like, well, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'll just have to go somewhere else. And I hated doing that. But to me, if you respond that way, then it's on them as far as how yeah. they want to react. And you know, not that I'm trying to prove a point, but then maybe, maybe if they get upset, maybe at some point they'll question their motives is why did I get upset over that? But... I just think it's a technique that is pretty common in our society. It probably always has been, but especially with the topic that we're going to talk about in depth today is, you know, positing these questions and framing issues in such a way that there's only one possible answer. And I think that's very disingenuous. And I think it also shows the climate of, you know, sometimes people on the left say, well, there's no such thing as cancel culture. Well, 
If there's not, and we can debate what that means. It's like a fish saying there's no such thing as water. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly what I was going to say, because all of these debate and rules around discussion from, you know, the Joe Rogan situation to who's allowed to get on the news and all this stuff. It's yeah. basically all of it implies that there is only one set of approved opinions. I hadn't heard Trudeau actually use that phrase. That's awesome that he did. So that's kind of what I want to get into is how we as as libertarians primarily on this podcast, but also from a Christian perspective, how are we to look at the social justice, you know, critical race theory stuff? Yeah. You know, what's really behind it? How can we respond to it? Because I think a lot of, to me, some of all that stuff reminds me a little bit of Marxism because I think you can read like the Communist Manifesto and agree with some of his assertions as to what's wrong. But those assertions where there's some truth to it are then used to something, Mm. you know, to justify something else. So there's on your bio on the site, there's a really good chunk. And I'll, I think I'm going to post this on the show notes page so people can see it and just a link to your bio. But you said, while I was on board with the social justice movement and its theology, I was very unsettled by the practical solutions being proposed by its advocates. So talk about that, you know, coming from where you come from faith-wise and then confronting this issue in the real world. Yeah, well, I think what I'll do here is sort of tell my story of becoming a libertarian, which is, I don't think it's atypical, but it's probably not the standard line, although it does sort of transition with Ron Paul. So there's there's that. Um, and it definitely involves the Mises Institute and Mises University and so forth. So back in, hmm, let's see, I started seminary in 2005. And so it was a little bit before that. Actually, I'll back up to 9-11 for a second, just to sort of preface that I was a sort of conservative Republican, just because that was what I inherited. And when 9-11 came around and George Bush, this good Christian man, was the president, 9-11 happened. And I don't know why, but I had this thought with all of this talk of you know retaliation in some kind to whomever it was and wherever they may be, that if we were really a Christian nation, wouldn't we turn the other cheek? And that idea just was like, and I talked about it with my you know college dorm mates or whatever, and I honestly don't remember anything whatsoever about those conversations. But... I do remember thinking about that. And then it just kind of went away. I didn't really endorse the war. I didn't really, wasn't really against it. It just, it was like, well, it happened. And so therefore there's just whatever it is. And and I guess there's a good reason to go to war. When I got out of college, because I was in college at that time, when I got out of college, I started listening to like some of the talk radio because I got XM radio and that was kind of cool to like have XM radio, right? So I started listening to the right wing news. I never listened to Rush Limbaugh and eventually a coworker of mine who was like sort of libertarian, he's not really, he's really a conservative now. And he's sort of stayed that way. But I thought he was. He was really into Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck was local in Philadelphia at the time and he was really funny and he also you know, was a little bit into politics or whatever. So I started listening to Glenn Beck and then Glenn Beck got bigger, went to CNN and then to Fox and had his own show. And so I listened to him a lot and he kept talking about being a libertarian at heart. Then he would kind of be down on Ron Paul, except for things related to the economy. And every time I would hear Ron Paul come on the Glenn Beck show, it would be all about the economy. And I was like, huh, interesting. At the same time, I started seminary. 
my theological beliefs were not as conservative as they once were. And I was reading, we would probably call them now leftist theologians or writers or pastors or whatever. And I was just like, wow, I really like what you have to say about the gospel and how that it's not just about the afterlife, that there is something in the Bible, something, not just something in the Bible, the Bible is a document, is a book that doesn't just speak to what happens to you after you die. Like there's way more to it than that. And that there is a lot of wisdom for living in life now. There's a lot of the gospel records Jesus being counter Caesar, which I'm sure we'll talk about here a little bit. And so there was just a lot going on there, but it always jumped to, that's why we need universal basic income. Actually, back then they weren't talking about UBI, but it was more like, that's why we need welfare programs, or that's why we need to do X, Y, or Z, or use less fossil fuels, or whatever the reason is, pick your leftist legislative laundry list. And those were the things. And I was like, uh, this doesn't feel right. I like what you're saying theologically, but this doesn't comport with me. I'm like, this requires me to say to other people, you don't have individual value. You are just something for me to say, you need to do this to comply or to be part of this agenda. And in some way, it's almost like there was this like Christian nation mentality on the left. It's like, well, we need a nation that reflects the values of Christ. Okay, what does that look like? Oh, it means stealing from your neighbor to pay for other things. No, not for me, not for me. So at that point, I was like, all right, looks like I'm going to need to learn economics. And I don't remember the very first book I read, but it wasn't by an Austrian. It might have been by a Chicago school person. And this was, again, leading up to the Obama election. So this is probably 2006, 2007. And eventually I came across... The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, which is by Bob Murphy. No, wait, sorry, not capitalism. It was uh, The New Deal in the Great Depression. That's okay. what it was. Yep. Sorry, I just misquoted the book. But anyway, so Bob Murphy had all these like places and that would lead you to Ron Paul, the Mises Institute. I also was like, oh, hey, Ron Paul, he's a good guy because Lynn Beck really liked him. And so therefore, I'll read some of his stuff. So I read A Revolution of Manifesto started listening to Rothbard for New Liberty. I listened to a lot of audiobooks. I listened to fee.org like classes that they did, their summer classes that they did when they were still up in New York. So I'm listening to all these via podcasts, via whatever downloads I could find while I'm mowing my yard, doing all this. So this is like 15 years ago or so. And this just felt right to me. There's a way in which we can achieve what one might call social justice ends without having to violate moral principles or biblical principles, or just for that matter, other people's respect and dignity, it might take longer, but it's going to be more lasting. You know, And sort of a truncated way for me to say that is something along the lines of, do you want to just have rich people paying for things that the poor, the destitute poor, not just under the poverty level kind of poor, although right. there are people too, right? And we should be concerned about that. But do you really just want poor people to have funds? Or do you want rich people to care about the poor? And again, those are two different goals. And I would even... I'm going to turn in my libertarian card here for about two minutes. I would even go so far to say that if we have to make a trade of some kind that it's temporary, like we make an agreement that, okay, fine, we're going to we're going to have this system where the poor are paid to you know sort of get out of poverty, whatever that might look like. But don't tell me that this is just your system. Like, this is your only answer, dear leftists. Don't tell me that you don't have any goals to sort of get rid of this plan, right? Like if you have a vision for what is the social justice ends, rich people are voluntarily caring for the poor in ways that you might find acceptable. 
But they don't want that because they don't believe that that will actually happen. They need control, right? And so you and I would say, well, sure, if Elon Musk wants to give his money to, you know, cure poverty. I mean, he even offered to the UN, I think, or the World Bank or whatever. He's like, hey, I'll give a whatever, $8 billion, if that's all it takes, show me your receipts. Well, they won't do that, of course, because that's not really the way this works. And that's not really their motive. Their motive is control. And again, I don't like to attribute false motive to people. But when you become the kind of person who gets in the kind of position where your power is such that you get to control people, I have to be skeptical. Yeah. I want to get back to that point real quick about control and sort of the both political and theological implications of that. But first, let's define what the term social justice. Do different Mm. disciplines, different, like it is in the theology world, which I'm not part of, I've never really studied officially, that is one thing meant by that community versus what another subculture yeah, I think there's a lot of yeah. issues that arise from that. I have a feeling, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, here's my cynical answer. Social justice is good things that happen in the absence of capitalism. <laughs> That's sort of what they seem to mean. So I would say that there, and again, I probably, I didn't prep for that answer, but I can give you what I think my impressions are of the definitions that tend to come out. They want to see, and I'll speak from, typically the Christian left, they want to see a world where people don't struggle for their basic necessities in life. Okay, food, shelter, the cell phone. I don't know what, like those things can change, right? Right. And we can talk about the economic developments in the past 50 years, but they want to see a world where that's not a problem anymore, right? They also want to see a world where the world itself, creation, the environment is such that it's not being harmed in a way that does... Well, it depends on who you ask. See, I'm already thinking in my head how I'm going to say this, which is basically an Alex Epstein-esque sort of answer, which is how do I not harm the world so that it harms other humans? So they want to have a zero impact sort of thing with the world. They want harmony among people groups. They want harmony with the creation and with each other. They want harmony among nations. So shalom... You know, this idea of peace, not just the absence of conflict, but that there is a wholeness to what is wrong with the world. And so they want to see all those things happen. What's interesting to me is the desire for those good things. I mean, Aaron, you and I both want to see those things too. I mean, right? Like, we don't want to see the environment damaged. All right. We don't want to see other people damaged by neglect or even for that matter, the results of their own choices. I don't want to see them damaged or broken. I mean, in an unhealthy, damaging way. But there are unhealthy ways to do that. And there are healthy ways. And I often allude to the idea of saying, well, you know what, there's a really terrible way for us to eliminate poverty. And that's to eliminate people who are poor. We're done. But nobody would go for that because that's ridiculously evil, right? right? And so we already know that that extreme example isn't there. But I don't think that people on the left realize that the problems they are trying to solve involve solutions that require more power, which is part of the problem that they say is creating the issues that they want to solve. Right. And so, I mean, there's so many libertarian articles out there on how the left is proposing solutions to the problem that are basically just going to exacerbate the problem. I mean, I think pretty much any listener to this kind of can see that with basic economic analysis. It's like, oh, hey, there's a supply chain issue because there's a whole bunch of ships off the coast of California. Well, let's just find them for sitting there too long. 
Okay, what? Right. Like, this that, is, yeah. some things are obvious, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. So I think one way to look at it is that people who have that desire to help people, like, you know, it breaks my heart to see the guy at the corner, you know, when you pull up to the stoplight or on the exit ramp, you know, begging for money. And if yeah. I have it, I give to those people. And so, you know, I try to do things. And I think that some of these people who advocate for social justice, I'm sure a lot of them do volunteer and contribute and stuff like that. But I think when you do something like that, like as I am giving, you know, money to the person we used to call a bum, but we can't anymore. But I always love how, you know, changing terminology is supposed to make things better. Like he's not better off because I came up with a slightly more nice term. But when that happens, when I do give that, I also have this pang in my heart of like, oh, well, I wish I could do more. And so I think that easy answer for people, especially people who have been brought up in the 20th century and in public schools is, oh, well, just vote for something to do it. So they feel like because we've been told that, you know, it's our responsibility to participate in democracy, whether or not they're doing it on the individual level, I think they really feel like they're doing something morally right because they don't see it as taking from one and giving to another. Or they they see it as their... Yeah, they see it as their say in us doing this together. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I have a friend of mine who kind of jokingly says that liberals or, you know, leftists kind of, you know, their view of government is the things we do together, right? As if there's no other way to, to do things. So, like, let's get back to that control yeah. thing. And obedience, like it seems like a lot of these, well, that's, mm, that's another yeah. issue. Yeah. But some people like to obey, no matter how stupid the control is, <laughs> um, as we found out the last couple of years. But let's talk about like, how do we start to talk about solutions for some of these problems? And I want to get into like race and things like that later, but yeah. just in, in general, like how do we talk about that to people, Yeah, whether religious or not? who have that feeling that if I vote for something, if I advocate for something on social media, then I'm actually doing something substantive and, and yeah. moral. Yeah. How do we start to make that case in a way that feels like not disingenuous to them? Because I think that some of the response to what we would say is, well, you just don't care and you just want to be left alone. Yeah. And I'm the serious person who wants to help people. Yeah. They don't yeah. see how our solutions could actually lead to better outcome. And I I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, well, there's a lot to say. And I think that's a really important question for a number of reasons. So I don't, I hope I don't ramble too much here about it, because it's really important. I think a key aspect of the solution to whatever problem you might have is to understand that there are things that you cannot control. And there are also things that you should not try to control. I understand that if it's within your purview to help your neighbor, your literal neighbor, the person over here next door to me, to do better, whatever that means, right? To to live better, to think more highly of people than they tend to, than they might, or just think more highly of people because it's better to do so. That whatever it is within my power to do, I need to focus more highly on that than I am fixing other people. Mm-hmm. Other people's problems are sometimes my problems, but they are not necessarily my problem to fix. I mean, I'm a parent and I have kids who... That's two ways of saying the same thing. And my kids, basically, sometimes I have to explain to them what he's doing right now, you don't need to worry about. It's not part of your problem. Doesn't even involve you. It doesn't affect you in any way. Stay out, right? 
And there are other things that you have to say, oh, well, this is something we have to work on together. And that whole together piece is really the key. It's been a huge lie that we do things together. And the only way that we do things together, whatever, whatever that phrase means, it's come to mean we do things together through government. Now, at a local school board level, I think there's a lot of energy behind us doing this together and stopping certain things from being taught in local schools, right? Those things, you can come together and in a meaningful way, govern in a very generic sense of governing, govern away or solve problems that don't involve the federal government, that don't involve the state government, or for that matter, even county and whatever governments between local and state for wherever people are. So number one, we want to make sure that we are solving our own problems first, keeping our own homes in order, because by example, we will lead. I don't remember the particulars of the conversation, but it had to do with immigration and refugees. And I was in a conversation on Facebook. I was in favor of relatively open borders. And they were like not in favor of this at all. And I was just like, wow, this guy just must hate immigrants. That's not true at all. Part of the sort of labor of love they do outside of their work was that his family, they house refugees and immigrants and help them get citizenship. Mm -hmm. So he was actually doing things for people, for the benefit of the people, just like I would want him to. But he was actually on the opposite side of the political idea of open borders that, that I'm on. And so you have to get to know the people that you're talking to because sometimes they are individually handing out snacks to bums or whatever. Although I'll defend the people who want to change that because if you don't want people to call bums, language creates. And so when you use words, it's just helpful for us to not think of them as bums. That's all. And I know you were just, you were rapping on the whole in mentality, but which is totally true. Language matters, but you know, I'll go with Bill Maher on some of these things. Like, come on, really? Like, there's just a whole lot of unnecessary changing of things. But yeah, there's a difference between bum on one hand and economically displaced person on the other hand. Like, I think it goes the opposite. That's also dehumanizing to me of trying to come up with something that is just so theoretically correct that, yeah. So, oh, yeah. No, I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I lost track of where I was heading with my... So the point was like... Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, solve, solve the... No, it's all good. I did my own sidetrack with that bum comment. So who's the bum now, right? Yeah. Um, fix your own house. That's kind of the first point that I wanted to make. The second thing I would say is teach people not to be moral busybodies. That's a C.S. Lewis term that is pretty common because moral busybodies seem to have pleasure in dictating what other people do and sort of setting about systems that create circumstances that somehow are supposed to create a better outcome. And so if we can just if we can just meddle in people's lives, I simply despise people who want to meddle in others' lives. And it's not really about, I don't want them meddling in my life. It's really more about, it just feels creepy. It just yeah. feels wrong for others to meddle in each other's lives without permission, right? So we need to give others' permission to speak into our lives. And so we need to afford that. I mean, come on, golden rule. Like, if you want to love your neighbor as you love yourself, does that mean that you want your neighbor to be a moral busybody about you and tell you all the things that you want to do? So we've become a society where that phrase, judge not lest ye be judged, it's kind of thrown out the window. I remember in the 90s, 
non-Christians would sort of say to Christians who want to be moral busybodies, well, you know, Jesus said not to judge. And that's not really quite what Jesus meant. But like, no one wants to make that argument anymore because we all want to judge. We all want to make a pronouncement over every single thing that's in the world. Like, who cares? Like, Jen Psaki should not at all be commenting on Joe Rogan and Spotify's relationship and what he says. Yeah. This just this should not be the thing. Like, it's been over 100 years where we've had a president say, that's not the purview of my administration or my role as president. Yeah, I really like your point about, you know, it's not about myself being inconvenienced. Like, you know, the stereotype is that all libertarians are, you know, selfish Ayn Rand, you know, mm-hmm. clones or whatever. But like, <laughs> what, you know, what upsets me about the COVID panic and the government's response to it is not... That I, you know, like I said, I don't do it anymore unless I, something I absolutely essentially cannot get anywhere else. Like I yeah. did wear for a medical, a uh, couple of medical appointments that I absolutely had to to have. But yeah. it doesn't bother me of like, oh, that I'm so offended that I this happened to me. It's when I hear about kids who are yeah. having to eat outside with their masks on, not talking to their friends at public school, it's when... Or when they're not allowed to take off their mask for a Stacey Abrams photo op. Oh, isn't that the most bizarre and <laughs> grotesque? Like, and not... The, I'm not making a comment on her personal appearance, but on sure. the fact that she is held up as this saint-like figure. And, you know, the people on the other side of things don't see how dystopian and just yeah. like sadistic almost that is, doing that to children especially when they're, you know, we could go down the list of reasons why. And so it it does like, you know, when I'm upset about the war, well, it's not because I'm upset about paying an extra, you know, half of my taxes go to that, although I am. It's upset to me thinking that it goes to like, you know, kill the children of Yemeni sheep herders, right? Yeah, yeah. It breaks my heart over that. And I think that you're right is that, that impulse for control, I think that's one of the the worst things about, you know, democracy, public schools, things like that, is because it does say explicitly that we all have a right to say something about someone else's life yeah. and do something about it, not just have an opinion. And once you open that, you know, take down that barrier of respect for your neighbor, you know, then everything's on the table Yeah. at that point. Yeah, you're totally right. It's really sad to me. And along with that goes the value of free speech. It's not just what we do. Like, I can kind of understand the mentality of somebody who wants to create a society where people are encouraged in some ways to make better choices, to care more for their neighbor voluntarily, and so forth. I can wrap my head around that. I cannot wrap my head around the rejection of free speech as a value. Yeah. I just can't. I don't know anything that is more damaging to our civilization than to abolish free speech. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty bold statement. And I think it was Jordan Peterson who kind of got me around to thinking how damaging that was. Because if you abolish free speech, you are basically suppressing thought. And as soon as you do, I mean, come on. Nobody, I keep saying, come on. I Man, Joe Biden has really negatively influenced me. Like, give me a break. What should I say from here on out, Aaron? Um, uh, I, I don't know. If I come yeah. up with something, I'll let you know. <laughs> we have to do better with 
emphasizing the value of free speech. And part of that, and again, I'll point to the coddling of the American mind, which is Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, it's really important that people understand how they can work through things that upset them. Yeah. And so loving your neighbor might mean helping, you know, being the kind of person who is not just run roughshod over people, but also to sort of help people on the other hand to be like, look, something offended you. Well, why is that? Let's talk about it. Yeah. And it's not really like somebody says something to me, like, all right, like as a kid, people would tell your mom jokes and I'd be like, okay, like, right. I never found them funny. Right. Oh, well, sorry. I found them funny. I never found them offensive when someone did it to me because I'm like, well, I know my mom's not like that. Right. Like my yeah. mom, my mom doesn't have her own zip code because right. you know whatever. So it's really kind of dumb to me that people are you know offended by things that they don't have to be offended by, and, and it is a learned skill. It is something that you have to learn to cope with, and because I'm teaching my kids to do this. But on the other hand. I think it's important that we also don't just decide that free speech is licensed to say damaging things unthoughtfully. And for that matter, it's also okay to be challenged when you say damaging things without realizing it. Yeah. You know, the super minor example, of course, is what we just talked about with calling somebody a bum. But I mean, it is possible, and I think we could probably lead this into the CRT stuff. It is possible that the critique about white privilege, the critique about how people are being in the world creates circumstances and creates situations that people have to react to that might not be necessary. Yeah. I don't quite have anything in mind, but I can understand as a parent not realizing that I can do something that seems innocent and has no origin in anything malicious, causing a negative outcome that I myself don't even want. Okay. Right. You know, I have a recent situation in my family where with a relationship with one of my children where I didn't realize that what I was saying in good fun was actually damaging to their psyche. And that's a pretty grave way of putting it, damaging to their psyche because people on the CRT-friendly side are going to say, well, that counts as aggression. It's not quite that, although I'm sure there's a case to be made in some circumstances. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I want to get into with, I think that the critical theories, critical studies movement... Yeah which has been around for a while, is a deliberate attempt to weaponize social justice and to use it for basically Marxist political aims. Again, because it's very easy for them to say, like, I, I don't know, I think somebody asked Joe Biden about CRT and he was like, hey, what's wrong with teaching your kids to be nice to other people, right? So like... Right, because that's what CRT is. Right. On the surface, it seems like that, but what it really is is a tactic you know, call everything racist, you yeah. know, sexist, homophobic until you control it. And yeah. Then, yeah. then you can be Stalin, you know. But so I guess yeah. let's talk about kind of how that view of social justice. And I think some of those people are good hearted. And again, yeah. they think, oh, this is a goal. And I have these smart people who are on TV and writing books and at universities telling me how to get to that goal. So I'm going to buy into this. How do we try to expose and open people's eyes up to the real motivations behind people who are, I think, weaponizing the desire of people to be nice and to have some sort of, you know, degree of social justice. But really what it leads to is like explicitly a Marxist 
cabal. You know, I mean, it sounds, you know, stupid to say that, but that's kind of what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the first step would be for the two of us as white guys to step off screen and let only voices of color speak. Right. I say that sarcastically, and I, I, but, I don't want to. I don't want to risk it not being say, valuable. Let me, let me say this real quick. Yeah. If we did, if I did have someone on like that, and I have in the past, then those people are attacked for having internalized all this stuff. If they, oh no, I totally get it. There, yeah. you can't win when you're not speaking. See, that's the reason it's not really about race, because you have someone like John McWhorter, who is a black linguist, a linguist who is a black man. I don't know how I'm supposed to say it because we're all we all dance around all this. So I would say this. Let's bring it back to loving your neighbor. If you are the kind of person who is being weaponized in the culture war, okay? You are not loving your neighbor, okay? You are being used as a weapon by power elites, by the CRT elites, whatever we want to call them. You are being used, okay? If you are using race-related, sex-related, any critical study or intersectionality sort of relevant topic or agenda or aim or platitude or whatever you want to call it, if you are using that as a weapon, you are not loving your neighbor, okay? Loving your neighbor means putting down your weapons and loving your neighbor, okay? So at the very start, we need to call people out on being weaponized or using something as a weapon that should not be weaponized. So if someone tells you or me that we just have no business talking about this, which you know, for me, by the way, I have a decent amount of good things to say about critical race theory. And if you listen to my interview with Phil Magnus recently on our podcast, you'll kind of get that sense. Like, there's good things to say about critical race theory. The problem is, of course, like we talked about earlier, is the solutions that come along with them or the assumptions behind the reasons why those things exist. No one's questioning that there's economic disparity. Nobody's questioning that there are I mean, libertarians of all people know that we need criminal justice reform. I read a book last year giving critical race theory sort of a fair shake by reading one of the, you know, the two authors, Richard Delgado and Stephanie. Actually, I can't remember the last name. Stefanczyk is the last name, but I can't remember the first name of the woman. Called uh, Critical Race Theory. It was like a, an introduction. It's like a 100-page book. It's not very long. It's by two people who are in the movement, so it's not like two white guys writing about it, Right. And I gave it a fair shake and I'm reading through this and I'm just like, well, it's just explaining what critical race theory is in as neutral a way as possible. And I think it was pretty good. And I'm like, yeah, I totally get that there are judges who make decisions that are colorblind that actually have a disparate outcome to black people. That doesn't phase me in a bit, doesn't surprise me in the least, but the answer is not illiberalism, right? Like at heart, I'm still a liberal in the sort of classical liberal American revolution sort of sense, like all people are equal, free speech, all those kinds of things. I think everybody watching this would kind of understand what I'm saying there. Liberalism is going to work far better than whatever critical race theory has up its sleeve as agenda items because it's based and grounded in reality. It's based and grounded in principles that are moral and treats other people with dignity. If you see everything as power dynamics you are looking through a distorted lens. That's a helpful lens to look through. Just like we put on different sorts of glasses for reading, for computers, for taking pictures, for you know, bird watching, whatever. We use certain lenses to get us insight into other things. Critical theory is not unhelpful. In fact, it has a lot of good to say. But it's not just a matter of like, oh, we need to learn American history and be taught that, you know, the ancestor of the black girl was sitting beside you in class was a slave to your great-grandfather, which is almost never probably the case. 
in many circumstances, especially in the North. And so it's very, very different. The concepts around critical race theory, and again, I'm not an expert by any means. I've done a little bit of study and I know enough to know when the wool's being pulled over my eyes, is mm-hmm. that it has good things to critique, but it's got terrible solutions and terrible explanations for why those things need to be either abolished, changed, modified, reformed, whatever. Well, let's talk about that. Like one of the things that I really think they're doing, and I hate it to say this because it does sound like, you know, Pat Robertson, Ralph Reed, uh, Matt <laughs> Buchanan, whatever. And not that those people are all bad, but they're not that great. Yeah. Is I really do think that, you know, the nuclear family and things like that's their ultimate goal because, yeah. you know, there, there are... Maybe stuff, like to tear it down and to make it irrelevant. Right, to make it irrelevant. Yeah. So that's not a source of identity and belonging to people that they have loyalty to their family and by extension, mm-hmm. you know, their cultural group or their town or something like that. But I think that, I forget the term, James Lindsay talked about it on Rogan here recently, but basically wanting to have the people always having these shifting, never defined identities. And like the fact that I'm married to my wife and that I take that seriously and I don't mess around with other women And all of my decisions, like I do things that I don't want to do because I love my wife. Like that is a core part of my identity. And there are certain things that if the government told me to do, I wouldn't do because of my loyalty, my covenant, my commitment to her. And I think that, you know, if you can get to that point where people will, you know, and we've seen it a little bit with COVID of people disowning family and saying, F you, you're not coming to Thanksgiving unless you're you know, triple boosted. I really think that that's where that Marxist leftist, like, again, I think the smart people who are evil and want power are taking a lot of good hearted people and taking a critique that has some valid things to it. Like, yeah, nobody would, I think, dispute the fact that in some circles, like a black lesbian poor woman has it worse off than I do. But, you know, in higher education or something like that, you know, it could be different. So I, I think yeah. that that I think it's good that we somehow are able to acknowledge the truth in some of these criticisms, but try to call out the fact that these people are just, you know, the good-hearted foot soldiers of all this are being used by people who don't care about, you know, race or poverty or anything like yeah. that. Like I think that a lot of this is you see that graph on certain catchphrases in the New York Times and other places that, you know, after Occupy, that things like systemic racism is all of a sudden it's being talked yep, about. Because yep, I, yep, think the global, right. I think the global elites saw that the left was getting a little too close to central banking and they said, oh, well, we need to come up with something. And I think this is a way specifically to divide people and to unmoor them from the good things in our lives that give us identity. I can't think of something more systemically evil than central banking, and yet they don't want to touch it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like, if people talk about, oh, systemic racism, systemic this, systemic injustice, or whatever, I'm like, or some Christians might say things like social sins, and I'm like, yep, 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 central banking. Anybody? Anybody? Fiat currency, yeah. Nothing. 
I've even challenged some of the leftist people that I've actually mentioned in the past, and they are just kind of like, yeah, that doesn't seem like to be really the issue. And I'm like, really? I'm guessing that most of the people who are in central banking aren't non-white. Like, I don't know. Like, can't you go after them? Like, if you're going to go after white people, go after the central bankers. Yeah. And even if they're not, like, I have a friend who I'm not going to give any more info other than to say he has a fairly high up job in a very well-known financial services company. And he's also one of, uh, like, a good-hearted person who I think gets some of it, but doesn't get others of it. And he was talking about this company is like fast-tracking a bunch of people who aren't old white men. But those people are going to do the same things. They're not going to pick people who aren't online with the the company policy and the whole thing. And you're right. Like, it amazes me that people who, you know, have a view of... You know, they will criticize rich people and all that, but their eyes seem to glaze over when you do talk about, like, you know, central banking. And even if you just talk about inflation, that, hey, one of the best ways you can help poor people is to not devalue their money, you know, because <laughs> that the fact that uh, oh. a pack of cigarettes costs $7 now instead of $4, like, yeah, maybe they shouldn't be smoking, but you're hurting their lives. Whereas the people at the very top, and the people closest to the spigot of where the money comes out, they're affected the least by that. Yeah. Yeah, the one exception has been somewhat this past pandemic because at least, at least the, I mean, even Ron Paul sort of made this, not concession, but like this comment in one of the debates, like we would have been better off just giving everybody checks instead of letting the Federal Reserve funnel money to the banks and bailing them out, right? Like we would have been better off funding people directly back then in 2008, which is kind of what happened during COVID. It's like the wealthy and more well-connected got more money. Okay, there's nobody's denying that. But like the average person actually also got money for some of this. And yet it's like, this isn't free. And you and I were probably on Facebook saying, hey guys, you're going to pay for this in about two years with higher prices. Well, here we are and no one saw it coming. Yep. There's actually something in your bio too that I wanted to get. This is a good segue. So with questions about social justice swirling in my head, a still small voice said, if you're going to understand how to change the world, then you have to learn how the world works. And to do that, you need to learn some basic economics. And Mm. I think a lot of people who we want to reach would hear a statement like that. They hear economics and they think, oh, this person wants to get rich. So why is that not? Or they're nerdy. They're too nerdy for me. Like they don't want to talk about things that are, you know, yeah, yeah. I told somebody, a friend of mine who was a tutor, he was tutoring me and learning Greek for about a year. And he told me he wasn't interested in economics. And I told him, well, if you're interested in social justice, then you really need to learn some basic economics. Well, now he actually has. He even found the Austrian school, which is really nice. And that was like seven years ago. But anyway, that's a really tough one because economics can be a tedious exercise in monetary theories. And I think that's probably what turns people off is that they understand it's about monetary theory. You might want to say, maybe I should say this differently, is we might want to say we need to understand how the economy works. Because, you know, I remember the Peter Schiff book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, which is sort of a mostly text, but semi-illustrated, written in like 2009, 2010, I think, book that was aimed at like adolescents and teenagers. And so, and it's pretty easy to read. And I'm thinking, oh, 
I don't have to learn economics. I don't have to get a degree. I don't have to take a class or anything like that. You know, you and I are probably, you know, we kind of gobbled that stuff up or maybe we still do. But to understand how an economy works is pretty critical. It's sort of like saying, I want to help people who are being depressed and having zero interest in understanding how the brain functions or understanding the chemical interactions that sometimes cause depression, or even for that matter, the human relationships that cause people to react the certain ways that they do, right? So like, you can't say, I want to solve a problem and then completely ignore the relevant field of study that would help them, you know, that would help you get the kind of information, at least in some direction. And I would say, this is the Hayek quote that we all love about the curious task of economics is to demonstrate how little they know to men, how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And the idea of design, of course, is like everyone thinks that we need to design an economy. And so if you think of economics, you think, oh, we got to design an economy. I have a friend who's a close friend of mine. He's a leftist. And um, he just like his personality is like designing systems. He actually works with me in business and it's like wonderful because he has parameters and systems in place that like keep me in line because I'm all over the place. And so it works really well. But he also thinks that society should be that way, should have some sort of order in that way. But with economics, you end up being shown that you are so significantly limited when you reach outside the nuclear family, when you reach outside small social groups. It's also one of the reasons why some of the sort of socialist-looking things that we see in the scriptures, I don't think apply to modern-day economies because they didn't have 300 million people economies in mind when they did those certain things. There's a scalability problem. And I think we shouldn't make the scriptures speak to things that, that it's not speaking about. We can learn from that. And the one thing that I would learn is like, oh, well, hey, you know what? If you want socialism, hey, if you can convince everybody to be part of it, including me, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. But that's not what they want. They want to yeah. force everybody. Yeah. And I think that it's funny that central banking was kind of the last thing of, besides central banking and war were actually the last two things that kind of prevented me from really sort of being an ANCAP. And, you know, on the central banking thing, I think it's very easy to, like, I kind of always had the Milton Friedman Chicago school thing of, oh, well, you shouldn't monkey around with it too much, but let's just set up a fair system and something that's stable and then have complete, you know, free markets. And I think that with foreign policy, it's kind of the same thing. Scott Horton uses the phrase truncating the antecedent that you look at a particular conflict like the Israel-Palestine or Russia-Ukraine and you start your analysis with 2018 or whatever, you miss the whole context of everything. And that's why I think that economics and central banking is so critical to understand Mm -hmm. just about everything because it is, again, to go back to Mises, human action. It's how we decide what we want and how we go about getting it. Yeah. You know, the economy is a big way that a lot of that gets done. And I think it's irresponsible of people who claim to be serious thinkers about things to not even, like even, I'd give them points even if they had like a rudimentary understanding of economics. And even if they were wrong, like they don't even seem to bring in like Marxist economics and and stuff much, you know. (laughs) They're not even adept at bad theories, let alone good ones. (laughs) They're just ignorant in the most polite sense possible. I mean, everybody should be like Jordan Peterson. He will not speak on things he's not equipped to speak on. Like someone asked him a question about the resurrection. He goes, 
I'm going to have to research that before I answer. Yeah. And he hasn't answered yet. Like it's been years and he's still thinking through it and whatever. Maybe he has and I haven't seen whatever he has said. But yeah. I have one other question, kind of a bigger topic related to yeah. this. And then I have a couple of, hey, let's do fun stuff before we say goodbye. Yeah, that's all good. Sounds fun. Understanding that you guys are, are you guys a 501c3? Yes. Okay. So you're not taking opinions on candidates or, you know, endorsing the Mises Caucus or this or that. Like, just theoretically, as a, yeah. as a libertarian, what do you think about how sort of the different factions of the liberty movement, how are they responding to the social justice critical race thing as it applies to politics? Do you think that... Yeah. Yeah, I'll just leave it as a general question. Like that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't lead with that question. <laughs> you kind of warmed me up. I'm going to say this from the perspective of somebody who, generally speaking, likes to give people the benefit of the doubt and likes to assume that whatever infighting or outfighting or fighting that I see on Facebook or social media or... I mean, I'm mostly on Facebook. I don't really do Twitter very much. But I see tweets and back and forth screenshots on Facebook of, you know, a libertarian candidate saying something that could be a dog whistle to the CRT people to sort of attract them to maybe vote for the libertarian. And, you know, I see people somewhat righteously or even rightfully kind of upset by that. Okay. And so for me, I'm looking at this and thinking, I bet you if we were all just sitting at a table drinking together, this would be a whole lot better like these conversations would be. Now, I realize that there are deep-seated, long historical reasons why there are the, just for lack of my mind, coming up with a better term for it, beltway libertarians mm -hmm. and non-Mises caucus-type libertarians. There's a lot of history there, and I, and I totally get it. I see value in the liberty movement for not all of those organizations, because sometimes... You know, you could look at them and say, oh, well, okay, maybe they add value because they help, you know, like, I'm going to be cautious here because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. One particular organization I know is really, really good on, in my opinion, okay, maybe not in yours or others, but in my opinion, really, really good at, their people are really good at defending immigration, open borders, policy, more and more immigration, okay? So you can read into who I'm talking about there. There are other organizations that do really, really well at reporting how the government is failing to even meet its own criteria. They're really good at reporting stories and complications in the main narrative at calling it out. And you probably know who I'm talking about there because I'm using the word reporting, okay? But they're the only reporting organization that's explicitly libertarian. So like, okay, fine, you can pick your beef with them in certain ways if you don't really agree with their politics, but I wouldn't call them statists. The other thing is the fighting is good because it sharpens our views. It's also, I'll jump back to the value of each of them because I promise you, I will not get my leftist business partner to become a libertarian if I don't share with him things that he already somewhat agrees with. And I'm not going to find that on the Mises website. Most likely. I'm going to find that on reason.com. And it's going to be the article that I select that's like, hey, look, you agree with this. This is the libertarian take. And he might read that and say, holy cow, their take is very thorough and it's very critical. And oh my goodness, they're right. So that just built rapport with me. 
But there are other friends who are the completely opposite, right? And so I think there's a value in a lot of ways. Like there are many ways to be a libertarian. I know that that sounds heretical, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. There are many ways to present as a libertarian. We'll go with that, okay? So the idea that we can get in Kapistan in the next election is really ridiculous and impossible. And so I would say, let's work with what we have. And it's okay to fight. It's okay to argue. It's not new. Mm-hmm. Was that part of your original question? I think you were asking me. I'm, I'm rambling at this point. but no, uh, I, I guess yeah. kind of how they, specifically how they deal with... Oh, how they've handled... Yeah. CRT and what sort of the... yeah what libertarians should think and do about it. Yeah, I I would say, no, 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 it's all good. I can narrow it down a little bit. So I believe that the organizations who are taking critical race theory seriously tend to be the ones who are going to be heard by those who need to hear that critical race theory is a threat. John McWhorter was interviewed by Nick Gillespie and he wrote a book called Woke Racism. And it is an incredible book. I read it twice in the course of a month. When it came out, it was, well, I listened to it and I read it. It is an amazing book. It is a book that's probably the most important book of 2021, in my opinion. They're doing interviews with people who are going to be heard and that those things are going to be challenged. Now, to be fair, so are all the morning shows having John McWhorter on. So somehow his voice is being heard as a counter to the madness that is critical race theory sort of gone amok by the people who don't actually understand it. Which, by the way, I should have said earlier, most of the shenanigans going on with this critical race theory stuff are people who don't really understand what it is. And that goes on both sides. I would say that if you're going to critique something, you have to be very good at critiquing it and not just throwing out, oh, it's just Marxist propaganda or it's just Marxist in origin and therefore I don't have to engage in it. You're not going to convince your leftist friends to hear what you have to say, what's wrong with critical race theory, if all you say is, oh, well, it's Marxist. Because that... I mean, in some people's minds, that's about as eyes glazed over as you get when you say you need to learn economics. Right. Um, it's, so it's, you have it's, to engage it's, in the It's issues. Archie Bunker calling everybody a commie, right? Like, it, it's what they... Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Like, you can't do that. I mean, it's fine if you're in, like, a private Facebook group and you're like, oh, those people over there at that think tank, they're just a bunch of statists because they just cozy up with the legislators. All right, fine, fair enough. But that doesn't mean that their materials can't be useful and that their ideas aren't going to be somewhat, you know, palatable to people who we want to see, even pay attention to us, what, 4% of the populace. Right. Besides McWhorter, and I think you've mentioned a couple of other people mm-hmm. um, who, from yeah. a Christian and or libertarian perspective, is good on CRT, social justice. Yeah. Even if you want to go back to the basic of social justice, yeah. anything that we've talked about, what are some good resources? Yeah. On the general stuff on social justice, I, man, it's been so long since I've read books on that. I hesitate to use certain people because I don't want that to put me in a category. I'm going to be narrow with it. So on the topic of social justice, I would say people like Brian McLaren, Tom Wright. Is that N.T. Wright? Yeah, N.T. Wright. Tim Keller. I know lately he's been sort of bashed by a lot of Christians because he's said some things that are kind of, I don't know, whatever, but those would be influences that I think are pretty good. For critical race theory, I think it's important to give them a fair shake on their own merits. That doesn't mean you have to read Ibram X. Kendi. It doesn't mean you have to read Robin D'Angelo, but it probably means you should read some of the more theoreticians in the movement more so. But James Lindsay would be one option as well. He's critical of critical race theory, of course. James Lindsay, John McWhorter, Helen Pluckrose, which is who wrote a book with James Lindsay, 
Phil Magnus, who I interviewed recently on my podcast. Those have been resources that I've gone to. And I don't want to read people who just complain about critical race theory. I want to read people and hear from people who have good things to say about the critique, who have honestly engaged in what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Let's talk about, just in general, anything that you're reading, watching, listening to lately that's good, even if it's fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've had this problem of, I can't quite get myself to read more than one fiction novel at a time. So right now I'm reading, I think it's by Chris Hadfield, who was an astronaut. He and another guy wrote a fictional book called The Apollo Murders, and I'm about three quarters of the way through that. I've started The Parasitic Mind by Gad Sad, who I heard interviewed on Michael Malice. So I'm kind of hoping I can get him to come on the podcast. I haven't reached out to him just yet. I am a huge fan of some of the stuff on Apple TV+, Plus, The Morning Show, Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've watched any of those, but those are like some of my favorites lately. And this is okay that we disagree. I was just having this (laughs) conversation with someone. I got a new iPhone and I got like a three-month subscription to Apple TV. And I looked at it and I'm like, none of these things look remotely interesting to me. Oh my goodness. And then I have a friend of mine, a couple of friends who really like Ted Lasso, and I watched the first two episodes and I wanted to... Ju- it's the dumbest, worst show I've ever <laughs> seen. It's Forrest Gump meets every cliched bad sports movie. And I'm oh an Oh my Angle gosh, file. that's good, that's Angle good. I, I really love soccer, but man... I oh can't stand, wow, I can't so even that, that didn't even hold you. No, no, I can't even stand to look at that guy's face. It's, wow. oh, it's the worst thing ever. And so my friends were like, oh, it gets better. And I'm like... Uh, that shouldn't be a reason if you're not really inclined. Although, I mean, I've had that happen to me too. But that's interesting that their content is, doesn't really appeal to you. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm predisposed. My, <laughs> I have an orientation that's pro Apple in many ways, having worked there for 11 years and, and been an <laughs> Apple fanboy even prior, for 15 years prior to that. So, I'm predisposed in some ways. But um, the type of content that I saw coming out... Oh, I know what it was. The other one was uh, For All Mankind, which is a alternate history of them landing on the... of uh, the Russians right. beating America to the moon. That was really good in, in a number of ways. There's some other stuff. So that's sort of what my wife and I have been watching because we tend to watch those things together. I've been lately consuming a lot of Jordan Peterson YouTube videos... Also, a little bit of Sam Harris because I like what he has to say about consciousness. I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around his, you know, outlook on things. But um, yeah, just watching Jordan Peterson just obliterate people who attack him for things that he doesn't say is kind of nice. Let's talk about Jordan Peterson. I know a lot of people in the Mises Caucus are really <laughs> inspired by him, and I'm yeah. I'm like I'm a little bit outside his demographic. I'm a Gen Xer. And I grew up as a Christian. So some of the, like I listened to his Old Testament stuff and there's a lot of good stuff in there. It doesn't like hit as hard with me just because I think some of the issues that people are going through that they respond to him, like I I was just kind of past some of those. Not not that I'm better than them, but like I've already synthesized. So I'm skeptical of anybody who you know, talks a lot about Christianity for whatever reason. And I'm skeptical in a, not in a, I think there's something wrong here with this guy. It's just, I'm having a hard time getting a full handle on him as a phenomenon. I'm almost all 
positive toward him. I really like him. But it, it, there's just something. You feel like that, you don't know if he's the real deal. Like there's an authenticity to it. Maybe or maybe like he's so just, put together. Well, no, I think the thing that really strikes me, and some people might hate me for this, and I'm sorry, but like he, we're libertarians, we should be used to this by now. Yeah, yeah. I think that sometimes <laughs> he comes across as he's like really, he really loves his own ideas, and a lot mm. of his ideas are really good. But sometimes I think he. You know, I think it's good that he doesn't speak on things he doesn't know, but sometimes I think he does. And okay. yeah. I, it's fine. And I, I like his imagination. But so I'm not really complaining. I'm just asking yeah. for another Christian libertarian's take on yeah. what do you think of him and of the whole phenomenon? Yeah. So I guess I'll speak to the phenomenon first. I think that he has represented a fresh presentation of valuable ideas that a lot of people raised in the church and or people who are sort of, maybe they're not Christians, but they know that that's what the church teaches about the Bible or whatever. It's repackaged in a way that they find that resonates with them. And I've known a handful of people who have changed their life around who would say that Jordan Peterson, and not all of them are men, sort of help them come out of depression and so forth. And so the trouble with Jordan Peterson, he's got so much right that we can mistake the truth of his claims with something that that is highly compatible with Christianity. And I don't want to say that as in like his ideas are not compatible with Christian thought. I don't think they're incompatible except in certain areas because, you know, of course, no thinker is going to be completely incompatible with Christian thought. So we have to be careful there. So the phenomenon is that he is helping people turn their life around or he is becoming the kind of voice where people can become the kind of people they want to be right? By listening to him. His Old Testament stuff, I haven't actually listened to it. Or if I did, I may have just listened to like Genesis or whatever. And I think I probably had the same experience that you did, which is these didn't seem fresh enough to me for that to be like, oh man, this is this, I just got to eat this up, right? Whereas there were a lot of people who were like, you know, they read Genesis 1 and all they can think about is the creation evolution debate. And yet they miss out on so much other truth that's there. And so there's that phenomenon in terms of him as a, you know, as a Christian, as a, sorry, in terms of him from a Christian perspective, I shouldn't say that that sentence was a little awkward there. Yeah, there's a lot of good to say. There's some places where I feel like he is on his way to truly having an encounter with Jesus to where I would venture to guess. And again, we don't know this for certain. I'd venture to guess that God's spirit is working in his life. And I think that maybe you kind of alluded to possibly one of the pitfalls in him is that he is attracted to his own ideas. And I don't think he's egotistical or, you know, sort of a sociopath in any sort of no, no, even I don't think healthy so, way. No. I think he understands his dragons. And I think he kind of knows what those are. But, you know, I think he's very, very keen on getting ideas right and being clear and concise and very exacting with language in such a way that your ideas are impenetrable even if like you don't have to defend your ideas. Like he can just simply write people off. He's like, well, oh, well, I didn't actually say that. And if you go back and read that chapter, there's nothing, you know, he was talking about, there's nothing in my chapter that indicates that this is good or whatever. He was just describing the way things are. And so it's almost like people read into him. They want to critique him. And he's like, nope, that's not how I said it. Go back and read it. And so he's very, seems to be very eager to make sure that whatever it is that he communicates is clear and, like I said, impenetrable in some ways. Like, And so you have to have a certain amount of 
self-aggrandizement to want that to be the case. Like you'd have to have some sort of confidence in yourself and interest in that. And so maybe that's why he comes off that way to you. And I, I kind of see that as well. But anyway, I I enjoy him. I don't feel like I need to take him as like the, my new sort of, you know, mentor or guide or anything like that through new ideas or through scripture or anything like that. But I do believe that God's spirit is working in him to probably find him in a more relationship driven kind of way. Yeah, I think you're right on all that. And I think the, I guess the one thing I was, I guess, trying to get at is I guess I have a sort of a visceral reaction when, and I shouldn't necessarily, but when people kind of make points about the Bible when they don't explicitly acknowledge what we believe the Bible to be. And I realize that that could be kind of intolerant or whatever, but I guess I'm worried about people maybe getting the wrong idea about some things of putting the Bible, oh, it's just like, it's just like Lord of the Rings or something, you know? Mm, the, yeah. And yeah, I, I guess this is, I made a bigger deal out of this than I really think it is, but I think he's just a, because he does encourage like healthy self-reflection and self-assessment. I, I really think he's, and I, a lot of his ideas are really original and have brought something to my faith. So yeah, uh, yeah. It, he's just, yeah, really interesting. The fact that people are willing to deep dive with someone on any issue. So yeah. Give me one book that you would recommend about Christianity and one about libertarianism. Oh, wow. Okay, so the one about libertarianism, I would either say Faith Seeking Freedom or even Call to Freedom because I'm speaking to Christians on that. And, you know, again, the book that I would recommend to anybody would always depend on like, are they just interested? Are they trying to be convinced from a moral perspective about free markets or whatever? Jason Brennan's Libertarianism is a good one. It's a Q&A book, but there's like 300 questions and they're a little bit longer, so it's more extensive. So if you want a general libertarianism's ideas there, you would get that. And he's pretty fair with, with all sides of the debate on, you know, like minarchism and anarchism or whatever. So Christian book. Wow. Am I telling a non-Christian what book to read? Yeah, just uh, about yeah. somebody who, not necessarily just like a, hey, I want to convert this person, but like, let's yeah. say somebody from Pakistan or Mars or something who doesn't yeah, yeah. have that much. Uh, yeah. So, and not, not about politics, but about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the t title of the book, but it would be one by Tom Wright. And I think it's, oh, it's just Simply Christian. That's what it's called. I was thinking Mere Christianity, but that's not right. That's C.S. Right, Lewis. So yeah. yeah, Simply Christian by Tom Wright would be probably one that I would do. There's a new one out. Well, actually, it's about two years old called Broken Signpost, which are where he goes through the book of John and it's why Christianity makes sense. So I would say all the time, I'm sure when I, you know, go upstairs after we're done recording, I'm gonna be like, oh, why didn't I think about this book or whatever? But those are the ones that come to mind now. Yeah, that's okay. I really appreciate all your time and I want to give you a chance to talk about, and it doesn't have to be a 30-second answer, but what's going on over at LCI yeah. right now that's exciting, coming up, recently uh, put out, besides Faith Seeking Freedom. Yeah, so we are about to hit our 260th or so episode of our podcast, which we've been doing for several years. We get a good listenership from that. We also started doing about, well, it was in 2020, we started doing a roundtable where we were on video talking about the news and the events of the day 
And we did that every two weeks. And we're still doing that every two weeks. But we also turned it into a podcast. So LCI has two podcasts. And what's coming up next is, and um, if I can get to it, I don't know when this is going to get published, but it's very likely that this will be out by the time this episode goes out. We are doing a third podcast. And it's actually going to be called Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. And what it is, it's not Q&A audio of the book, because that you can buy. But we are going to continue the conversation that we started with Faith Seeking Freedom. And we basically have produced all of our questions in short answers from like previous episodes of the podcast and ones that we plan to record. We're basically going to use this as a way for when people write to us and ask us questions, we can jump on a mic, one or two of us, and be like, answer those. So these episodes are like five to 10 minutes long. And it's literally just one episode per question or one, yeah, one question per episode. And so it will be a lot more frequent, but it'll they'll clearly be a lot shorter episodes. And it'll just be the episode will be the title of the question and it'll be a five to 10 minute answer. So that was inspired by Greg Boyd does a question and answer podcast just like that. And it's like literally exactly like I just described. It's just questions, reader questions, our listener questions, they write in, they've got a dilemma, they've got a theological thing or whatever. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. We'll start it off with sort of replaying some old questions that might that some of our new listeners might not have ever heard because they're from earlier episodes. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of what's new going on there. I can't quite announce certain things yet, but we do plan to be at certain events this year that are more libertarian gatherings. And so we're sort of building up steam and getting funds for that. So yeah, you'll have to look for an announcement on that. You did mention the one thing that we did on COVID, uh, the Pandemic Bites. If people want to go to The Pandemic Bites, make sure you put the in there. And it's B-I-T-E-S dot com. You can sign up for our email, which is basically bite-sized emails, similar to our Faith Seeking Freedom method of keeping things succinct. Although some of them, I think, are a little longer than we intended. Where you'll get basically one every week in your email. Now, if you go to libertarianchristians.com and you don't have pop-ups or whatever blocked, you will get an alert saying, hey, you know, you should sign up for the pandemic bites. And so, yeah, we're pushing a lot of content out that is going to be things that we believe people can share. And they don't necessarily have to be branded libertarian Christian. They're just there because this is a viewpoint that's really helpful. So there's a lot of new things coming up. We've recently hired a couple of part-timers to help us with getting all this content out because, you know, I only have two hands and one brain and I can't do it all. So yeah, so that's what's going on with us. All right, we'll uh, post links to all that on decentralizedrevolution.com slash 70, 70. And yeah, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I could talk to you all day. And so we'll have uh, somebody, we'll have somebody from LCI back on again in the future yeah. sometime. And if uh, you ever need uh, someone from the Mises Caucus to be on anything, uh, I certainly you know, do. Yeah. And we'll, this has uh, been fun. We'll make that happen. So, all right, Doug, I really appreciate it. God bless. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Kevin.
Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 